I got shot in 2015, six times. I got shot in the back of my head, my hand, and three times in my back. And then I was incarcerated right after that for a gun charge. So I really didn't have no direction, and I really wasn't looking for no direction either. Now since I've been in the program, they pretty much didn't show me my self-worth. It's the easier way than going out here picking up a gun, selling drugs. It's real life black successful men out here that's not ducking from the police or ducking no enemies. They just showed me a brighter way and a brighter future. That was Malik Tiger, a Chicago resident and participant in Chicago Cred, an organization that pursues transformative solutions to end gun violence by helping the men most likely to be perpetrators or victims of shootings transition to jobs in the legal economy. I'm Fred Dews, and this is the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. Malik spoke at a recent event at Brookings that featured other young men in the program, along with their mentors, and Arnie Duncan former education secretary, and now a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. You can listen to the complete event audio on our events podcast or on our website. After the event, Malik, Arnie, and Damian Flunder, another participant in Chicago Cred, joined me in the Brookings television studio to continue the discussion about how to break the cycle of gun violence that is occurring every day throughout America. We had this conversation a couple of weeks ago, But this episode is airing the day before the March for Our Lives rally in the nation's capital and around the country to end gun violence and mass shootings in schools. Stay tuned in this episode to meet Randy Aki, a Rubenstein fellow who grew up in Hawaii and is working on income inequality across race and ethnicity. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Arnie, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. And Malik and Damien, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So as you just mentioned, y'all were just participants in a public event here at Brookings that included yourselves and some of your colleagues in the program. And I was just very moved by some of the stories that you had to tell and that you shared. I'm going to ask you both first, Malik and Damien, why did you get involved with Chicago Cred? Malik, maybe we'll start with you. I pretty much got into Chicago Cred because First off, Mr. and Mrs. Jones and my godparents, so that's how I knew about the program. And But pretty much before I was in the program, I was really in a path to self-destruction. I ain't really have no set direction I was going, and I ain't really know where I was going to end up 10 years or even five years from now. So I got in the program looking for change. Now you said on the panel event just now that you were out of control. Yeah. I was way, way out of control. Selling drugs, robbing, stealing, and anything I could do to make myself stay afloat and stay above water. Uh, how about you, Damien? How did you get involved in Chicago Cred? <clears throat> I actually got involved through Chicago Cred through him. We was, we was sitting downstairs smoking, mm-hmm. doing what we do, and he told me he had an opportunity for me called Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones, he got to ask me some questions and stuff, some real funny questions. I didn't really want to answer them, but I did it. And then I met him the next day. He told me to come in. I met him the next day, and it's just been love ever since. Mr. and Mrs. Jones would be Roger Jones and Wendy Jones. Arnie, you were just on the panel, and they were part of the panel. Can you talk about 
than how Chicago Cred works, the role of people like Mr. and Mrs. Jones in the lives of these young men. Sure, I just think across Chicago we have amazing, amazing young men who are leaders, who want to change their lives, who want an opportunity to do something different. Obviously Malik and Damien are extraordinary, but they're not unique. And we're just trying to create opportunity for young men in communities who have been forgotten, who have been pushed to the side. And these are men, they're not boys, they have bills to pay, they are often fathers, and they're going to make money. And they're gonna make money in the legal economy or they're gonna make money in the illegal economy. And there haven't been too many options in the legal economy. So we're just trying to create that, hire guys, provide fantastic life coaches, help guys get their high school diplomas. We've had a couple guys start college in January. We help in terms of substance abuse. We help in housing when we need to do that. And just the combination of a chance to be part of a cohort, wraparound services, jobs. These guys are gonna lead the city where we need to go. We do this in partnership with community. Mr. and Mrs. Jones, as you heard, are just walking saints. They've run the Youth Peace Center in the community for 20, 25 years. You can't find people more dedicated, more committed. And as we work with more and more guys, we're going to continue to work with fantastic nonprofits and social service agencies and faith-based institutions who want to help their communities become dramatically safer. And Damien, you just learned that you got a job offer on your way here to Washington, D.C. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was at Cold Stone Creamery. It was an ice cream shop. Actually, I put the resume in. I didn't think I was going to get called back because I put in like four different ones that day. Ain't nobody calling back but them. Then I went in and did the interview. She had called me and told me that she think I was going to be a great fit and I could start the next week. Hell, I was kind of happy. It was like all my barriers, like they just breaking down slowly. My obstacles just, I'm just overcoming them. That's great. Congratulations. And I want to follow up on that by asking you all about, I heard this a lot on the panel discussion, about various kinds of certificates that the Chicago Cred program offers. There are certificates in food sanitation. Malik, I think you talked about asbestos removal. Uh -huh. uh, can you talk about what those kinds of certificates mean? The certificates that I've accomplished while I've been in the program has been my arm and my food sanitation license. And pretty much me getting them certificates didn't do nothing but give me more credentials, you know what I'm saying, help me better my resume, you know what I'm saying, and help me specify myself as an individual. Because by us going to jail or being incarcerated, getting felonies and, and stuff like that, society is holding us down. They don't want to give us a chance. Like, just like Arnie said, they forgot about us. And this program, this ain't do nothing but just show us that we ain't forgotten. It's still people out here that still believe in us and still believe that the youth is our future, regardless of the fact of what you did two years or a year prior, you know what I'm saying, that you still got a fighting chance to whatever you want to do. Well, Arnie, how do you connect these men and the work they're doing in your program, the certificates they're getting, with employers? Yeah, so our goal is to work with guys for about a year, and we've been with this cohort, of, and a cohort for us is usually 25 to 30 guys, roughly. We've been with this, this cohort almost a year now, coming up at the middle of April. And just to really help them transition from a life on the streets to be able to go into the legal economy. So whether it's high school diplomas, whether it's certification, our guys have lots of different interests. It might be culinary, it might be hospitality. One of our young men is working in a law firm now, Deloitte, the conservative accounting firm just hired one of our guys, which has been amazing. And uh, right now, Fred, is, we're actually in a very you know, privileged spot where we actually have more employers ready to hire our guys than we have guys ready. Now, as we scale this year and start to work with a lot more guys, though, that math will flip. 
But we have about two dozen employers who have said, you know, we understand our guys might have some criminal backgrounds. They might have felony backgrounds. Frankly, they might have violent felony backgrounds. But that doesn't define who they are. In a year working together, working through some of the trauma, moving to a different place, these men are smart, they're talented, they're hardworking, they're resilient. Many of the skills they learn to survive and thrive on the streets can absolutely translate into the legal economy. And maybe it's a little bit of a different talent pool, but we have guys from our first cohort who have been on a job for six, seven, eight, nine months and are doing it fantastically well. So we're going to continue to build those relationships across many different sectors of the economy of guys looking, again, I'm not looking for charity, we're not looking for a handout. We're looking for people to understand this is a great talent pool that's going to make your company, your corporation better. And I want to clarify for listeners that these men aren't part of the program because they've been assigned by the courts or the legal system, right? No one gets assigned to us, so no one has to work with us. These are all men who are looking to change. People often ask, how do you find them? They find us. There are so many guys out there looking for an opportunity, looking to get off the streets, looking to live safer, looking to have some stability. And we just have to continue to scale, to work with more guys and give them that pathway to the legal economy. Damon, you said something during the event. You said a lot of things that really struck me. And one of them was it's time to grow up. You realize that it's time to grow up. And both of you gentlemen mentioned that you're both fathers. And so I got to thinking, what do you think the role is of your relationship to, say, the next generation? One of your compatriots on the panel mentioned his younger brother. How do you look at the role that you're playing now, having gone through the program or in the program, and what you can give back to those who are coming up behind you, including perhaps your children? I can get them so much. Just off the nine, ten months I've been in the program, it's just I never seen nobody that wanted to help me. They don't care about me, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I came in the program, that's all they want to do. They never gave me no wrong advice, none of that. They was always straight up with me and honest. Malik, one of the other panelists was Mr. Uh, Jervon Hicks. He's described as a life coach. Can you talk about the role that a man like Mr. Hicks plays in the program? The life coach, they really play a big role. First of all, when they assign life coaches, it'd probably be like five or six people on one team or, you know what I'm saying? But the life coach has to learn his mentee, you know what I'm saying? Observe his mentee, know when his, know when his mood might be swaying this way. So I just feel like being a life coach, it played a big role because, like, my life coach was Javon Hicks. So me personally, I know I can call Hicks at any time of the night. I can call Hicks any day, you know what I'm saying, any time, and Hicks going to pick up. He's going to be there for me. If I tell him I need you, I need a ride, or I, I'm in a bad situation, or Hicks didn't talk me out of stuff. You know what I'm saying? I, I didn't call Hicks mad, ready to do this, that, the other, and Hicks didn't, man, listen. You got the stability right now. Don't mess your good thing up for nobody. So, you know, the life coach came from an inspiration that can inspire you and everything. So I just feel like the life coach play a big part. One of those things I think he talked you out of it that came out in the panel discussion was retaliation for yeah. violence that had been committed against you and or friends or, or loved ones. And it strikes me that it takes a lot of courage to not retaliate. Do you think that's kind of an accurate, accurate assessment? I would say courage, and I also say it takes a lot of mind power. Mm, okay. It takes for you to really sit down and pause, evaluate, and weigh the situation. 
You know what I'm saying? Is this situation really worth 30 or 40 years of my life? Not finna see my mama, not finna see my kids. It's really about just wearing your option and stopping and pause. You know what I'm saying? Because retaliation, anything that goes on, retaliation is the first thing you think about. Me being in a program, I just lost a friend a week ago. And then after that, six months ago, I lost two people within six months, back to back. You know what I'm saying? Then on Memorial Day, another one of my friends got killed. So it's just like retaliation, that's the first thing you think about. But the thing is, is I, if I retaliate, where I'm finna be at the next, the next hour or the, you know what I'm saying? What what might happen? Anything could happen within that split second. To chime in on what Malik was saying, I say it's all about the company you keep, because you can get you can get 20 years of wisdom in 20 minutes if you're around the right people. So I say it's all about the, the company you keep, and it's all about man control over yourself. If you got man control over yourself, then you you should be all right. But if you don't, you still playing the child role, still being a kid. It's gonna be bad things happening. And now, meet Rubenstein fellow Randy Aki. My name is Randy Aki. I'm a Rubenstein Fellow, one of the first cohorts of fellows here at Brookings, and I'm in the economic studies area. I was born and raised in Hawaii. I was born in a town called Waipahu, which is an old sugarcane plantation town, and it was primarily that, and transitioned into not being such a town <laughs> over my lifetime. But I spent a lot of time riding my bike on old sugarcane plantation roads and fields as a kid. Some of what inspired me to become a scholar is based on my background growing up in Hawaii and watching economic transition as different industries changed and the adverse impact on different groups, either by skill levels or by race and ethnicity. And in that environment, there was evidence that the economy is changing in Hawaii in particular, uh, but for the country and the world as well as we became you know, more focused on skills. So I became much more interested in that over time. So here at Brookings, I'm working primarily right now on income inequality across race and ethnicity. So a lot of people have brought to attention the increasing income inequality in the United States and also in other parts of the world, in Europe, for instance. In the U.S., it's often quite difficult to get a look at income inequality across race and ethnic groups because the data for disaggregating the information into those constituent parts are quite few and far between. And so one of the things I've been doing with some colleagues at the U.S. Census Bureau is to look at that and using clearly administrative data that has much larger population sizes, which allows us to drill down to the constituent parts, as I said, of, you know, different race and ethnic groups in the U.S. and look at that over time. So in another subset of work that I'm doing with a colleague who is located in Canada at the University of Victoria, she and I have been collaborating on using administrative data in Canada looking at the incidence of mortality for First Nations people, so Indigenous peoples in Canada. 
And what we find is some unbelievable and just dire results that First Nations women located on reserve in Canada have mortality rates that are, you know, five times that of the Canadian average for women in their respective age groups, for instance, even, you know, at various age groups along the age distribution. And we sought to undertake this just to get a sense of there's a lot of evidence that there is higher rates of mortality and violence against Indigenous women in the U.S. as well as Canada. And so it was our intent to look and get some definitive numbers. And again, with small populations as First Nations are, as American Indians are in the U.S., one can only really get at that with administrative data, census-type data sets. And I think that's a new emerging area that scholars like me are very, very interested in and realize that there are lots of benefits to using that type of data because it allows us to get information that otherwise is really obscured in survey data or other regional data that collapses information at geographic levels that are not very useful, such as the province or in the U.S., you know, counties or states. There's a book that I just finished reading recently and it's called Voices of Fire, and it's a book on literature, which is sort of unusual for an economist to be, uh, you know, recommending, but I found it a really compelling book, and it's by a professor at the University of Hawaii, and her name's Ku'ualoha Ho'omanavanui, and this book is really quite interesting because it examines a native Hawaiian legend, myth, story, telling of an epic journey of two goddesses, Pele and Hi'iaka, her sister, that is quite famous in Hawaii. And it's in some ways similar to the Greek stories of Odysseus or Hercules, those things that we are a bit more familiar with in sort of the West. But this is from a female's perspective, going throughout the island chain in Hawaii, fighting off monsters, fighting off witches, and going on an epic journey. And I found it incredibly fascinating because I had read versions that have been translated previously, but translated by men and non-Hawaiians. And this is the first time it's been translated. It's not purely translated, but it's also a, you know, a literary criticism and examination. But it's by a native Hawaiian woman who also is fluent in the language. And so it's a very unique book, I think. Let me shift gears here to kind of the overall story about gun violence in this country. And again, with a focus on Chicago, a city that you are all natives of, a city that I love through my fact that my father and grandfather are from there, but this is your city. It's a great city. A lot of politicians these days respond to calls for gun safety laws. The NRA does this too, by pointing to gun violence in Chicago as proof that such laws are ineffective. You know, Chicago, they put this big red spot on it. It says, look at all the gun violence in Chicago. I mean, what's your response to that kind of argument? These aren't even intellectually complicated issues. So yes, Chicago absolutely has strict gun laws. The challenge, Fred, is Chicago is not an island that's isolated. Yeah. Chicago is 25 minutes, 30 minutes from Indiana. And guns pour into our community from Indiana. I went and boycotted gun shops there that a disproportionate number of the percent of the crime and violence in Chicago comes from there. So to be clear, we have a nation that's obsessed with guns. And I've said this publicly, and this is a harsh thing to say, but I believe it in my core that 
as a nation, we value our guns more than we value our kids, more than we value children. And the United States does not have a monopoly on mental illness. The United States does not have a monopoly on video games. Folks play those games and have mental health issues in other countries, but other countries just don't have the body count because they've done something different. England, Japan, Canada can go right down the list. My wife is from Australia, and uh, she's from Tasmania, Australia. In 1996, they had the horrific massacre of Port Arthur, Tasmania, her home state, where something like 35 people were killed. In the three weeks subsequent to that massacre, which, by the way, happened with an AR-15, like the most recent thing in Parkland, they changed all the gun laws in Australia. And interestingly, it was actually more of a Republican, more of a conservative government that did that. And that was in 1996, 22 years ago. In those 22 years, Fred, there's not been a single mass shooting in Australia. Not one. They decided to take a stand, and the gift that they've given to Australia's children is 22 years of peace. We have a mass shooting in America every week. This is not rocket science. This is not finding a cure for cancer. Those are intellectually hard. Other countries have just put in place policies where they value human life. And we have the March Tomorrow um, coming out with my family. What the young people in Parkland have done is remarkable. We sent down six of our high school students from Chicago to meet with them uh, a couple weeks ago. That was extraordinarily powerful. And again, it's another harsh thing, but I think, Fred, we as adults have failed. We have failed to keep our kids safe, and our teens are saying they've had enough. And our teens are going to fight and lead this movement, just as they helped to lead the civil rights movement. And I am more hopeful now that we'll see change than I have been in a long time. I just want to add one quote from the event, from a whole list of quotes that I think listeners really will learn a lot from. And that was Mr. Jermon Hicks, the life coach, who said, pursuant to this question of guns, he says, guns are an addiction. Gentlemen, you spoke about guns from your past experience. I mean, Damien, can you talk about guns in your life? When I was 16, 17, all we wanted to do was hear gunshots. You feel what I'm saying? So if, I remember when I was younger and we'd hear gunshots and our mama would tell us to get down on the floor. But like, when I turned like 13, 14, it was us doing the shoot. You know what I'm saying? But I never thought about it when I was little that there wasn't nobody but my cousin, my big cousin, them doing a the big the shooting when we was, when our mama and them was telling us to get out. So it's all about the role models and the company you keep, basically. Malik, what about you? Like you said, guns is a big addiction. Like I told you, I done been incarcerated in 2013 for a gun charge. Then I got incarcerated again in 2015 for another gun charge. Then, in 2016, my crib got raided for crack cocaine and paraphernalia, and they found a gun in two clips. When I was 16, 17, I had 10 guns in my own house. AR-15s, Glocks, you feel me? I had them. Me, 15, 16, 17, I had 10 guns in my house that I own. You know what I'm saying? So, when he say, yeah, from what you knowing in your, being in your environment, like I always told my mama, as I grew up and I started living a life that I chose and not the life that she wanted me to live. I was to tell her that she was crying and tell her, I used to tell her like, mama, you know, the way that I'm living my life is not from the way you raised me, you know what I'm saying? You raised me the right way, but I'm not nothing but a product of my environment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you pushed me out, but my environment made me the man that I am here today. 
You know what I'm saying? Me hearing what's going on the next block, that's what made me the man that I'm here today. That's what made me want to change. Me going to church every Sunday growing up, that didn't make me want to change. That didn't, that was totally off my mind. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like, yeah, being in that environment that we growing, guns is a major thing. How we growing up is either you're going to eat or get ate alive. I was really struck during the conversation about how, how much community, how much brotherhood is involved in the Chicago CRED program. I mean, Damon, you talked about you got into the program because you knew Malik. Malik, you got into the program because of your relationship with Mr. and Mrs. Jones. You have your life coach, Mr. Hicks. You've got Arnie Duncan. You've got this whole program. It really just strikes me as just kind of a, an all-hands-on-deck kind of approach to addressing this problem of, of not only gun violence, but also opportunity for young people who want to change their lives. I think these young guys are no different than me or my kids. They're looking for love, they're looking for support, they're looking for family. And I think we're just trying to create a healthy family with healthy relationships and learn from each other. What these guys teach me every day is unbelievable. And uh, hopefully we share a little bit of wisdom and knowledge and support, but they make me and our team better every single day. But many of our men, their fathers weren't in their lives. They didn't have positive male role models and putting both positive men and women into their lives who believe in them. I always say it's, it's relationships that change lives, it's not programs, and we're blessed to have some extraordinary individuals who are devoting their lives to helping these guys become the leaders that we know they can and will be. I wanna close off this conversation um, by, again, quoting one of you, Malik, in the event that was here at Brookings. You said that the violence in Chicago, and the violence anywhere, is an ongoing cycle that's not going to stop unless we break it. Can you elaborate on that, what you mean? Pretty much, I just feel like we the motive behind this fight. You know what I'm saying? We the biggest issue, the youth. If we take a stand and we start with ourselves first, I feel like other people will start catching on. Other people, if you, you got to lead by example. We can't tell people to stop doing this at the other and we still doing it. And we the best people to lead from example because we just was out here a year ago, six months ago, robbing, stealing, just out here a year ago, just came home from the penitentiary, just came home from the county, just came from what these people trying to fight. So other than Arnie or Mr. and Mrs. Jones, that they can't really relate too much to them. They really had to fight the fight that we had to fight. So us sitting here, standing here telling them, all right, it's an easier route. It's an easier way. You can get stability in your life easier way than standing on a corner. You know, it's a better route than going down here shooting at somebody, you know. Gotta start with us. Damien, in the event, Arnie said that it's not that the program is giving um, young men like yourselves a second or a third chance, but a first chance. How do you feel about that? I feel good about that, because I, I would say we never even had a first chance. So how are we gonna have a second chance if we ain't have a first chance? We would have a first chance, we would be doing what we're doing now. A first chance, we doing it now. I got 12 people on the waiting list. On the, they see what I'm doing, they see me going to work every day, they see I'm motivated to what I'm doing. I got two cars now, I ain't never had no car, I got two cars now. So they see what I'm doing, they wanna, every day they push. I got them calling Mr. Jones' phone every day, trying to, they want to see when the next cohort gonna come, when they, when they gonna open up for me, like that. They, it's all about pushing and giving advice. I give advice to everybody I be around now. Everybody, my brothers too, even though they still do what they do, but I still give them advice. 
Well, Arnie, I want to ask you in closing, how can people uh, get involved in a program like this? And what can they do in their own communities? Or what can they do to support Chicago CRED? I appreciate that. And people can look on our website. And CRED, just so your listeners know, stands for Creating Real Economic Destiny. And so there are a couple things, whether it's in Chicago here. We need mentors. We need role models. We need tutors. We need people who are going to walk with these men. I think we all have to move outside our own comfort zones and do some things that are different. And I can't ask these guys to move outside their comfort zones if we're not willing to do the same thing. We need folks who are going to hire, who are going to create jobs. And ultimately, we need people to understand that these men are the solution, not the problem. And we've got to empower them. We have to listen to them. We have to support them. But I can't, by myself, Fred, reduce violence in Chicago because I'm not shooting anybody. But we need to help the guys who have been caught in that life transition. And so your listeners, whether it's here in D.C. or across the country or in Chicago, walking with men, supporting them, giving them that first chance or that second chance or whatever it is. But we can't get to a safer Chicago if they don't lead us. And for all our challenges, I'm actually wildly hopeful. I'm wildly optimistic because I see their heart, I see their commitment, I see their leadership, and they inspire me every day. Well, I want to thank all three of you for sharing your time and expertise, and especially Damien and Malik. Thank you for sharing your truth with the listeners of the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. Thanks also to our intern, Stephen Lee. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.